Now we were just uh, What is that? Happy birthday to you. I thought I knew everything that was happening back there, but obviously I don't. Yes, I did celebrate a birthday this week. Yes, that's all I want to say about it. <laughs> Trying to keep it low-key, but uh, this wasn't working this morning. So I don't know who did that. I'm going to have to be thinking about that when I'm preaching here. But that guy was Scott Marquine that read the scripture this morning, and we were just giving him a test. Where are you, Scott? Right there, because this week, on Tuesday, he became the new principal of Meadowlark Christian School, and I think we ought to just give him a warm hand. So this was just a little test to see the, how you perform under pressure. We'll be praying for you. What a wonderful promotion for you, Scott. Uh, we were all thrilled when we heard the, the fact that you were going to be the new principal at MCS. Well, now let's collect ourselves. Uh, we, were, uh, we were hiking last Sunday morning, remember, uh, in some unfamiliar terrain. Uh, I should clarify, hiking in Second uh, Samuel. Uh, and it kind of whet my appetite to go back there again uh, this morning uh, because... Um, I think there's more landscape to uh, explore, some valleys and some rivers and some flowers and maybe some precipices uh, that uh, before we leave this passage, and we kind of wonder, will we ever get back there again? So uh, let me just linger here a little bit this morning. Marg and I were vacationing in the Maritimes years ago, and uh, Lynn, our youngest, was just two at that, uh, our oldest, I mean, was just uh, two at that time, and we were in a tent trailer. And uh, then we all got sick. Uh, we had some uh, Prince Edward Island lobster. And uh, suddenly we, we got sick and uh, we had to go to a hotel. And, and, uh, and then it was kind of like, we're done. Let's just take us back to Ottawa. And so we just kind of beelined home. And you know, as we did, we drove right past Quebec City on our way home and we didn't stop. And I remember driving by and saying, we're going to regret this. This is Quebec City. You can't drive by. This is almost a crime. And I always look back and say, we should have explored some more. That we needed to see Quebec City. Well, that simply means we have to go back someday and, uh, and just take a little time and explore beautiful old Quebec City. Well, we're in 2 Samuel 23, if you have your... Bible, and we'll follow this morning. We're just going to explore. I know it looks like the landscape is a little bit barren here. Just a bunch of names. Thanks, Scott, for getting through all those names. Aren't you glad that if you look at the very end of chapter 3, aren't you glad we didn't give you that section to read? That's all names. Uh, but just a bunch of names. The inner three of David's mighty men, uh, his 37 valiant warriors, Soldiers at his side all the time. 
Actually, it's not boring. These are very exciting moments in the history of David and God's call in his life. I think David was king for about 40 years, but the route that he took to his kingship certainly wasn't uh, an easy one. And he gets involved with a bunch of unknown ragtag guys who change his life. I think if there's any movie makers out there, you ought to make a movie on this particular passage of scripture. It would make a great movie. Say, so I have a little quiz for you this morning. You up to it? You don't even need a pen. You just have to draw on your memory bank and see if you can dredge up some of those answers from what you learned in the past. Just pretend that you're playing Jeopardy. First question is this. Who taught Martin Luther his theology and inspired his translation of the scripture from Latin into German? Who was that person? Where's Sid Page this morning? Second question, who spoke to Dwight L. Moody in the shoe store that day and ultimately led him to Christ, which led ultimately to a magnificent life of evangelism for D.L. Moody for the rest of his days. Who was that? Oh, here's one. Who was the elderly lady who prayed every day of her life for Billy Graham, especially during the heyday of his ministry during his crusades? What was her name? Or who helped Charles Wesley get underway as a composer of music so that he would ultimately leave the church with over 5,000 hymns. Who was that? How did you make out with your responses? <laughs> yeah. These were incredibly significant people in history. Had they not played the role, the course of church history would have been very different. These were amazing people. And we probably don't know one of them. Let's just bring this up to where we live today. Maybe right here at TCC. Maybe you teach a class upstairs with our children. And maybe you've done it for a long time, but you think, well, it's a big church and nobody really knows me. I'm not that well known here, all these people. Or maybe you work in the kitchen and you wonder if anybody really knows you. Or maybe you're on staff at a, at a minister of a ministry and you kind of work behind the scenes. You're not recognized. Everybody knows that other person, but very few know your name. Or maybe you're in charge of the sound system or the video projection and you set it up from week to week, but who stops to say, thank you for what you have done? There are so many people here at TCC who work behind the scenes. You, you ought to be here at 8 o'clock in the morning and just see how incredible this is. We're all waking up. We're all a little tired. We're all walking in with coffee in hand, and we're going to work. We're all kind of in a bit of a daze, but we all know our assignment, and no one is in the limelight. It's just everybody being faithful behind the scenes. Well, want to know where I'm going with all of this? What I'm wanting to say with all of my heart this morning is that the most important people are not the people that, the ones that people applaud, they are the rarely mentioned people who are faithful behind the scenes week after week after week after week and hardly anybody pats them on the back. 
Before I say anything more, just let me reiterate this again, that the success of this church, and dare I say every other church, is because of the people that nobody knows. So hiking boots on, let's go back a few thousand years. Uh, Everybody knew David. David, oh, they sang the song. Well, they didn't just sing it. They danced to the tune, and as they danced, they sang... Saul has slain his thousands, but remember the next part, but David his tens of thousands. Didn't feel very good to King Saul, but it told you the feeling of the people toward David. They just loved him. Around the world his name is known, the slayer of the giant Goliath. And even even today it's known, even in the secular corporate world, people say the word Goliath and they say the word David because they know the analogy. And then David, out of Saul's jealousy, had to live in caves and forests and had to forsake all creaturely comforts. And he spent 14 years running for his life, dodging bullets like a fugitive, no place to call home. But then when all of that strife had ended and David finally became the king of Israel, the country fell into the hands of a very good leader and Israel prospered mightily through the leadership of David. And David comes to the end of his life now in 2 Samuel 23, and now he is reflective of everything that's happened. And, And you know what really is happening here? David's remembering. David's remembering. He's remembering. He's remembering the tremendous team of people that stood so loyal and tall and committed with him. And he wants to talk about 37 warriors who stood shoulder to shoulder with him. And look at verse 8. The historian writes, These are the names of David's mightiest warriors. And then you have a long list of names before chapter 23 closes out. And we hardly take the time to read those names because they're just names and we don't know who they are. But every one of them has a very special place in David's heart. We don't have much information on these rough and tumble guys. Uh, But there is one warrior that the historian wanted to talk about a little bit more. And he gets a little more press, and his name was Beniah. Beniah. Have you ever heard of Beniah before? Probably not much. Maybe you read his name and forgot it, but you probably read it, uh, but don't know a whole lot about him. Here's what we know, verse 20. Uh, There was also Beniah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant warrior from Kabzeel. Uh, should be on the screen there, I think. Uh, he did many heroic deeds, which included killing two champions of Moab. Now, Benaiah was a southerner. He was from deep south Judah. Uh, you might know that. Uh, born and raised not too far from Beersheba in the Negev, in the desert of Judah. Uh, hey, you know, uh, there's, there's, there's just nothing like being from the south. And... Moab and Edom were not too far away from Kabzeel. And Benaiah is known for his decommissioning of a couple of ringleaders of terrorist organizations holed up in Moab. They were the Moab champions. And, and somehow Benaiah went in and, and he, he did a number on them. It says on another time, on a snowy day, he chased a lion down the pit, down into a pit and killed it. Uh, we'll come back to this but, because... 
You have to ask the question, what are you doing messing with a lion? Do you have nothing else to do but chase a lion into a pit? Wow. Did you ever turn on some of that uh, ultimate fighting stuff? If I ever turn it on in our living room, my wife finds a very good reason to leave the room. She doesn't like it. Benaiah, I think, would have liked it. He would have loved it. He was one tough dude. Once, it says, armed with only a club, he killed an imposing Egyptian warrior who was armed with a spear. Benaiah wrenched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with it. I mean, this guy is quick and courageous, and he's up to about any physical challenge. This is the caliber of warrior that was part of the inner 37 of David's little army. Benaiah was some dude. And it says that deeds like these made Benaiah as famous as the three mightiest warriors. He was more honored than the other members of the 30, although he was not one of the three. And David made him captain of his bodyguard. When David became king, he made Benaiah captain of his bodyguard. You see what happened to this guy? I'm just trying to make this point that he got a huge promotion when David became king. Who was right up there beside David? Uh, one of the fighting guys from the south, Benaiah. You all know Benaiah was right there. Who would have ever thought that this southern lad would climb to such great heights? You can write a great resume by being just being the best wherever you're at today. Just wherever you're at today. If you give your best today in the small things of life, as a child, if you just start giving your best as a child, that'll just take you a long ways. And if when you're a teenager, you just keep giving it your best, 100%, committed to whatever is on your plate, that'll build a great resume. You build your resume without even knowing it. And your life is writing a resume day by day. And when you get a little further down the road, somebody says, I sure want to have that woman or that man on my team. They're eagles. They're winners. They're valuable. Remember how Paul said that in the later years of his ministry. He said, tell Luke to come before winter. And, and bring along, remember, bring along John Mark. And he lists a number of people. He even came to appreciate how significant John Mark was. Paul was saying, I'm sure glad they're on my team. And, and then even about John Mark, he's kind of like he's saying, I finally get it. I really, I, I, just over, I just didn't really look close enough to see who you really are. And he kind of wrote John Mark off. But now he began to see who he really was. But who knew anything about Benaiah? Reminds me of the story of Teddy Roosevelt, who was standing in the presidential line at his presidential reception. And he had a guy on his left who uh, would whisper in his ear the names of the people who were coming along because the president needed to look good. And so he'd always whisper, well, that's so-and-so coming, and this is so-and-so coming. And as he looked a couple of three people down the row, he said, there's a fellow, two or three people down, and he's coming along, and, and uh, Mr. President, you know him. He made your pants. Uh, so the guy got next to him and finally right up along the president, and the president said, Major Pants, so glad you're here today. Welcome. Oh, my. And that might have been Benaiah as he went to work 
for David as a bodyguard. Who's that guy coming along uh, to, to meet David? Do you know him? And David wouldn't have had to be informed. He knew this man. I mean, he'd watched his behavior. He said, keep this man close to me. He's a good man. I can count on him. And Benaiah went on to have an illustrious calling as bodyguard to the king of Israel. It just goes to show you, if you're faithful day by day by day, who knows where God's going to take you. Oh, and by the way, did you know that after David died, this same man became a commander, became the commander-in-chief of Israel's army under King Solomon. So he was the most, second most powerful person in the entire kingdom of Israel. So look at what a great resume will do. But where did it all start? Well, it probably started on a snowy day. A day when he chased a lion down into a, into a pit and he killed it. Verse 20. I mean, I don't think any of us would try ever try a stunt like that. But Beniah, Beniah did. Well, come to think of it, so did David, actually, didn't he? When he was a young shepherd boy, he realigned the jaws of a bear and, and a lion. So maybe that's what they did for fun back then. Just take on a bear or take on a lion. But we don't know the story behind this crazy, crazy adventure of chasing a lion down a pit on a snowy day. That seems to me that would be a major problem to enter a pit with a lion. Maybe the last problem you'll ever have. But admittedly, if, if you can come through an experience like this, it really looks good on your resume. I don't have to tell you that lions can weigh 500 pounds, run 35 miles an hour, and they have those little things on the end of their paws called claws. And Benaiah chose to not run away from his 500-pound problem. In fact, he didn't run away. He ran to his problem. He ran to his problem. Are you going to run away from what you're afraid of? Or are you going to run toward it and finally conquer it? Are you going to let fear tell you what to do for the rest of your life and just be bossed around by this thing in your gut called trepidation, apprehension, anxiety, fear? Or are you going to say, by the grace of God, I'm going to deal with that, and I know my God will deliver me? So after some more hiking this morning, let's just, let's just pull over for a few moments and sit down on a big old tree stump and think about the implications of what we've just seen. Here's the first reminder. It's honorable to pursue a dream. It really is honorable to pursue a dream. You have dreams. I know that some people might say, well, ah, it's not really me. I'm not really a dreamer. But I expect you are. Maybe if you're a parent, you have one very special dream and you gave that dream a name when he or she was born but Benaiah was a dreamer I don't know how he ever got connected to, to David how did he hear about this group uh, but no doubt Benaiah uh, David represented a cause to which Benaiah wanted to belong that's I think the connection he might have said this guy is going where I want to go and so I'm going to hook my dream to his dream 
And you know, that's often how it happens. We can see our dream aligning with someone else's dream. We maybe don't want to be the out front, up front dreamer, but we really value what somebody else is doing and how they're leading the way. And we say, that's what I'm going to do too. And that's where I'm going. And I'm going to link my dreams with his dreams or her dreams. I think David's dream, however he communicated it, sparked a lot of dreams for his 400 men. He had 400 who rode posse with him. How do you discover the dreams in your hearts? I'm not quite sure what my dreams are. Can I give you a couple of suggestions this morning to see where your life is headed, where your dreams are, and, and what is shaping who you are and, and the direction that you will take? And the first thing I want to say is look back, not ahead. And you might say, do you have that right? Look back and not ahead. Don't we really need to set goals for the future? Don't, we mean, don't you mean look ahead, don't look back? No. Look back, not ahead. You have a better idea of the goals to set if you put your hiking boots back on in your own life and you walk back, back, back through the defining moments of your life. Take out a piece of paper and, and, and pen sometime and just ask yourself, what are the defining moments of my life? For example, when I was a child. And what are the key influencing moments of my life when I was a teenager? And what about in my 20s and my 30s and my 40s? And now we're getting up there. What about in my 50s? Key defining moments. And you might come up with 10, 15, 20 life gates. And they're just windows that allow you to look into your life and see what God has been doing in your life through the years. And when you discover from your past what God's been up to, you can see the trajectory for the future. It tells you something about your dreams and your heart and your passion and the things that really, really matter in your life. So go ahead and give it a try and see what you discover about yourself. Take a walk backwards in your life and see all those key moments in life that shaped you. Uh, it's fun. I did that this week. Uh, it didn't take a long time to do it. But just took a few moments to review my life and kind of the pivotal moments. And, and those moments, they just rise like cream to the top. Uh, they shaped my life. They gave me direction for the future. So if you need to see where your dreams are for the future, just put on your boots and walk back. Kind of take a look at how God's been shaping you and touching you and impacting you and putting things on your heart and what are the key moments secondly it's inspiring to rub shoulders with a dreamer dreams are infectious uh, a dreamer infects other people with uh, her excitement and with with her joy a dream a dreamer is influential hardly without knowing it uh, 
people inspire by their by their dreams and their excitement and and they inspire others to put their shoulder behind the wheel and that was David over and over again you know and I, I personally I can get around dreamers and people in my life who have great dreams and when they talk my heart beats fast and my pulse begins to race and the eyes begin to water and wow I'm just thrilled to be part of that that just brings me right in you'll discover that there are some times in our lives when we're focusing on the dreams that God has given to us and it's clear and unmistakable that this is exactly where we should be where we should be there are other times when God wants us to give our attention to someone else's dream uh, and we find just great joy in being part of that dream and making that dream become a reality I think that's exactly what Beniah did he rubbed shoulders with David Benaiah had a dream, but he saw that his dream was closely aligned to another leader who was taking the ball down the field. And he loved the heart of David. And he loved his dream. So he helped David's dream become a reality. There's something very touching about that. In fact, uh, the dreams were melded together. It became a corporate dream. It became 37 men who brought their dreams together under the leadership of David. Awesome! And Benaiah saw all his dreams come true. And, and I imagine that he never thought of the extent to which all of this could possibly unfold. I mean, who would he have ever imagined being David's bodyguard when David became king? He would have never imagined that. Or could he have ever imagined that he would be commander-in-chief for King Solomon? Oh, my. Me? Only God. What you have to admire about Beniah is his courage. I mean, he played on the, on the risky end of life. And we celebrate this man's life not just became, because he came out of the lion's den alive. And that was incredible. But the amazing part of the story is that he went down into the pit. It's not coming out that's courageous. It's going in. And one of the hardest things to trust God with is the outcome. If we go in, will we come out? Or how will we come out? And how will we look? Oh, it may seem foolish to, to run toward a lion. We may, it may seem crazy to go down into a lion's pit. But on the other hand, think of Noah. He must have looked very foolish building an ark. And Sarah must have looked a little foolish sewing maternity clothes at age 90. That seems foolish. And Peter must have looked foolish getting out of the boat. And the wise men must have looked foolish following a star. And Jesus himself must have looked foolish hanging on a cross. But that's not the end of the story because Noah was saved from the flood. And Sarah gave birth to Isaac and the wise men found the Messiah and Peter did walk on the water and Jesus not only died but he was raised from the dead. What's holding you back? I, I can't make this decision in my life. I, I don't know. It's just too hard. I might look foolish. I can't go get some counseling. I might look weak and foolish. I can't make that decision. I might look foolish. Go ahead, look foolish. 
See, there are two different kinds of regrets. One is that we did some things that we regret doing. We should have been more careful. We shouldn't have said that. We shouldn't have done that. But the other kind of regret is that we didn't do something that we should have. And interesting, in a study conducted by Tom Gilovich and Victoria Mehta, they came up with these stats. In the long term, when we look back over our lives, we tend to regret inactions over actions 84% to 16%. So when we get to the end of our life and we look back, we, we regret some of the things that we, that we did, but our greatest regret is the, thing, the things that we, we didn't do. We had dreams that we didn't follow. We were afraid, we were nervous, we were intimidated, and as a result, we left a whole lot of, uh, on the table. We failed to take action, and we regret it. A missionary came home from the field. It was time to retire, uh, and he came home disappointed because in many areas of his ministry, he didn't go for it. He didn't go for it. And his excuse was prudence. And it ranks as one of his greatest regrets. He was prudent. He didn't want to appear foolish or reckless, so he toned it down, and he looked status quo. Faith is the willingness to look a little bit foolish. If God's calling you to step out, my friend, it takes a lot of courage. There's a difference, though, between recklessness and pure craziness. Back in 1912, a fellow by the name of Franz Reichelt jumped off the observation desk of the Eiffel uh, Tower, the, the deck. He had designed a parachute way back in 1912 that he hadn't really tested. He got permission from the police. He was confident that he could do it, but he was just dumb. No way else to say it. He fell to the ground. He left an indentation six inches deep in the ground. There he is. He didn't test the parachute. Dumb doesn't honor God. Due diligence does. And God usually leads us step by step by step by step. And we learn to trust, and then he gives us another step. And we get that under our belt, and then he, we take another step. I'm sure Franz Reichelt didn't hear God tell him to jump. He was reckless. But I want to say this. When you are hearing God, and you hear his whispers, you may not always want to be prudent. You may not always want to be prudent. But follow the dreams. Trust God for the open doors. And discover what he wants to do in your life. If you have a dream, tell somebody that you trust. You don't have to tell the world. Just tell somebody you trust. And look for confirmation of new steps in your journey. Trust the wisdom of godly people on your pathway. But when you know this is for you, you know it, you know it, you know it. Go for it. Fight for the dream that's in your heart. Face your fear. Fight for your dreams. And live for the applause of the nail-scarred hands. And uh, don't let what's wrong with you keep you from worshiping what's right with God. 
Satan did everything he could to divert Jesus from his mission. And Jesus was fasting and praying in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. And Jesus simply said to him, get out of here, Satan. For the scripture says you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the scripture says the devil went away and the angels came and they took care of Jesus. He'll do that for us too as well. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you could see the intensity of the fight against the dream of Jesus. It was the plan of God. It was the plan of God. And Jesus was facing the biggest battle of his life, but he kept saying, Your will, Father, your will, not my will. It's not about me. It's about you. It's about your will. This, I'm willing, Lord. This is hard, but I'm willing. Aren't you glad he went down into the snowy spit, pit, so to speak? Jesus. And he faced his enemy. He overcame. The Lamb has overcome. And if you need any inspiration at all for your dream, just look at Jesus. Just look at how he, how he was so clear on his mission, so clear on his commitment and his obedience to the Father. Uh, we sing this song here at TCC. I love it. Carry Job uh, forever. Forever he is glorified. Forever he is lifted high. Forever he is risen, he is alive, he is alive. We sing hallelujah, we sing hallelujah, we sing hallelujah, the lamb has overcome. We sing hallelujah, we sing hallelujah, we sing hallelujah, the lamb has overcome. Well, this morning, friends, we, we have the privilege to gather around this table and to declare our hearts to follow him with all that we have, the Lamb has overcome. Uh, may this table be a source of faith building and, and even dream building in your life. And remember that the reason we come around the table is to declare one very huge thank you to Jesus for not being too prudent. For not being too prudent. He went all the way to the cross. He gave himself without any reservation to his Father. So if you're here this morning and you know Christ in a, in a personal way, just please just take the bread and eat it. It represents the broken body of Jesus Christ. And just take that little cup and drink it. It represents the blood of Jesus that was shed on our behalf on the cross. And then just dream. How can I be better committed to you, Lord? What, what are you asking of me? And say yes. Yes, I'm aligning my dreams with yours. I follow you. And if you've not yet come to personalize a relationship with God through Jesus, don't feel uncomfortable to allow these elements to pass this morning. Just keep on in the search to know who Jesus really is. So if you know him this morning and you love him and you serve him, take these elements as an act of celebration that Jesus took your sins and he paid for them with his own life. He took your place. He loved you that much. So take the bread and take the cup and give thanks. I'm going to invite our servers, if you would, to come forward. Bob Montgomery is going to come. He's going to lead us in a word of thanksgiving for these elements. So servers, please come.